Well, you probably had some uh, heavy meals over Thanksgiving, and today is a little bit of a heavy subject, but I hope by the end we see the glory and we see the, the joy and the freedom that comes from a, maybe a better understanding of the fear of God, because God does desire to be feared. So on the back of your announcements there, on the, on the B side, you'll see some questions. We're going to go through eight questions, so we're not going to have a really smooth uh, transition to transition through this sermon. We're going to look at eight separate questions and try to answer them individually. And I have forgotten, we do have children's ministry back here, and it is that time for our leaders to head out and our kids to head out. Thank you for that reminder. So we're going through eight questions this morning about the fear of God. I was uh, observing a conversation online, and someone was speaking about different things that are coming into Christianity that are not good in our evangelical world. And a person said, you know, the problem is not really these bad things themselves. It's really that we have a lack of fear of God. And that's the thing that triggered this sermon. Then I had a friend uh, from seminary who said uh, through social media that he had just preached on the fear of God. And I listened to his sermon, so that just increased my desire to preach on this. And I've got a friend in Australia from seminary, and he's about to preach. That's his first sermon of the new year will be on the fear of God. So it just kind of became a thing amongst us, and so that's why I'm here at this point today. So we've got eight questions that we want to ask this morning. And the first one is this. Why must we talk about the fear of God? That's kind of a heavy subject. Jay, don't you know you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar? So let's talk about the love of God. Well, we need to be balanced, and we need to portray God as he portrays himself. That's what worship is, to say back to God what he is. And part of what he is is things that should lead us to the point of fear and should lead the world to the point of fear. And we'll get into the two different types of fear in just a minute. So why must we talk about the fear of God? Two things. Uh, a man named John Murray, a Scottish um, theologian, said this. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. That's John Murray. It's a motivation. It's a motivation for us to become like Christ. And then we're told in Scripture, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, we're told to contemplate the fear of God, to behold, to embrace the fear of God. Listen to this. This is the, this is the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So he's just talked about his whole life, all these things that he's done his whole life, all the good, all the bad, the highs and the lows. He's talked about all of that. And he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is man's all. And he goes on to say, because God will bring every work into judgment in the future. So why must we talk about the fear of God? Two things. It's a motivation for godliness. And two, the Bible tells us to contemplate these things. The Bible encourages our fear. It, it commands our fear. So what is the problem? Our second question, well... If you're paying attention to the world around us, you'll notice that the world seems to be losing its fear of God, what fear that it had. 
if we go back two or three hundred years, and if we could see the culture around us, we would be shocked at how far we've descended away from a fear of God. Listen to what George Washington said. This is on the, uh, uh, in 1789, I believe, when Thanksgiving became a national event. This is, these are the words of George Washington, our first president. And, and just listen to how different this sounds than what we might hear today. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly implore His protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed and acknowledged by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. So that's George Washington, 1789. And you know, up until recently... In our culture, it was fairly common to refer to someone as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman, and we don't use that terminology anymore. And it just highlights the fact that it's become less and less important in, in the way society observes other people. Are they a God-fearing person or are they not? If there's an initial verse for this sermon for us to briefly consider, it's this, Romans 3.18. If you're familiar with Romans, Paul is basically talking about the world around us. He's talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Gentiles and how the world is, is uh, in a state of rebellion against God. And the last thing he says in Romans 3.18 is this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think that's the world around us. There is little to no fear of God in the world we observe and in the world in which we live. So the first problem is the world is significantly suppressing or rejecting its innate fear of God that it has in its heart that God put there. It's walking, it's suppressing that, Romans 1.18 and 3.18. Well, the problem for us is what? The problem for us is that the church tends to follow the world a lot of times. Things that are believed in amongst evangelicals today come not from Scripture but from the world around us. That's the problem for us. That's the immediate problem for us. That's why the fear of God needs to be front and center in our minds for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of Christ-likeness. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll get to that in a second. So the church is following the world. And I want to give you, I'm not going to use names here, but you're, Probably some of you will know who I'm talking about, certainly on the last one of the three. You'll know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give names of examples of the evangelical world following the world outside. But here's three things that have happened in the last two weeks. There is a very well-known female Bible teacher. I won't use her name again. Because I don't want to focus, I don't want to get sidetracked on the person. I want you to think about the issue. Not only does she teach women, but she's become a preacher and she preaches to men. And she's leading a sort of a feminist 
movement within evangelicalism. She's been, uh, that issue's been addressed with her multiple times, and she's becoming more and more and more resistant. So that's an example, feminism through uh, female preachers. Then there is a denominational president who back in January said that the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Does it? No, it does not whisper about sexual sin. But just recently, in the past couple of weeks, he's also said that when he's speaking to a transgender person, he will use their preferred pronouns out of uh, just an act of compassion or thoughtfulness or, or grace you know, to that person. And I hope you understand the problem with that, and that is it denies the truth. It's entering that person's delusion, but it's denying the way that God created the world as the world of humanity as male and female. So it's a, it's a dishonoring of God to do that, to enter that person's delusion and use their preferred pronouns. And I, that's probably a whole sermon. But then I'll move on and get in more trouble. In the past couple of weeks, a well-known restaurant chain, which has benefited from its association with Christianity and being closed on Sunday, Has been uh, has been revealed that they have sort of succumbed to the world of of uh, gay and lesbian pressure, and they give to Covenant House and they give to the Southern Poverty Law Center, both of those liberal organizations, which affirm homosexuality. And that's unfortunate. And it's a business; it is their money to do with as they choose. But I'm pointing out the pressure that people feel to go along with the world, that evangelicals are feeling. That's my point. Not to condemn them. I'm not starting any kind of boycott or anything. So there's some examples of the church following the world rather than following the Word of God. It's happening. The pressure is increasing for us to do that. So how did we get here? So two things. We've forgotten Scripture and we've forgotten history. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And let's look at the beginning of at the beginning of the church. The church was being pressured. The church leaders were being dragged into court just like Jesus said they would. They were drugged into court or dragged into court. Look at Acts 4:19. And listen to what Peter says. So Peter's Peter's on trial. The name of Jesus has been forbidden. Don't preach in this name of Jesus anymore. And what does Peter say to the leaders of Israel? But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You're telling us to listen to you and to ignore what God tells us. Now turn over to Acts chapter 5. They're on trial again. They sent out, they, kept, they, they were let go, they kept preaching. Now they're on trial again. Look at verse 29, 529. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, now he's not asking the question, you'll notice. He's saying this directly. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So we're not going to leave it up to your decision or not, we've told you to investigate whether we should listen to you or whether we should listen to God. We're going to listen to God. So do with us what you will, right? That was his attitude. 
James 4, 4. I won't read this one. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You can't be a friend of the world and an enemy of God. So that's the forgotten scripture. What's the forgotten history? What evangelicalism is facing at this moment in time was gone through a hundred years ago. The same exact thing. That's why it's important to know church history. We've been through this all before. A man named Machen, Presbyterian, left Princeton Seminary because Princeton Seminary let in the the theological liberalism that the Bible is not really the word of God. The book of Genesis can't really be trusted. Those things began to happen. So Machen left and began Westminster Seminary and uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So we went through all of this again, but we've forgotten that. We've forgotten that history, that these things, these these attacks on the Bible come into our churches and that they must be fought. By the way, a hundred years ago, what ended up happening, you had evangelicalism, which is us, kind of went one way, or one way, and fundamentalism kind of went the other way. I think Christianity in America before that split was much better than it is now. Evangelicalism sort of became friends with the world, and that's what the fundamentalists kept saying. You guys are becoming friends with the world. Well, the fundamentalists became isolationist. They said bye to the world. Well, you can't do that either. And they became hostile to uh, education. They They wouldn't send their kids to, you know, uh, colleges and things like that where they were going to hear evolution and all of that. They retreated from the world. And they were not uh, encouraging their kids to become educated like they should have been. And then there was legalism, too, that came into fundamentalism. So there was this split, which really is unfortunate because the evangelical side went towards the world and the the fundamentalist side went towards legalism and, and ignorance, frankly. I'm looking for the day when those two paths of, of American Christianity come back together. I think both sides would benefit from a, from a reunification. But that forgotten history of evangelicalism, loving the world, is the problem. That's the Achilles heel for us, the world. So that's how we got here. Number four, what are the two kinds of fear of God or the two ways that fear causes us to respond to God? So I grew up uh, well, in the last, I don't know, 30 years of my life anyway, in more of an evangelical environment. And so I was told repeatedly, this, as soon as the issue of the fear of God would come up, someone would say, well, now the fear of God, that's just awe and reverence. That's not like real fear. Well, that's not really true. There, In fact, I'm not sure that there are two kinds of fear, so much as there is just the fear of God and two responses from people depending upon are they a friend of God or are they not? What is their relationship to God and how does the fear of God, uh, how is that reflected in their life? So you've got two kinds of fear. You've got fear as we would normally think of it as fear, as, as dread, as terror. So there is that. We see that all through Scripture. We see the terror of God, people running away from God. That's what dread and terror type fear do. It makes somebody run away from God. There's lots and lots of ways you can do that. Lots and lots of ways you can run away from God. 
things that you can occupy your mind with so you don't have to think about who God is and what his requirements are of human beings. So that's the first kind. There's dread and terror fear. And what does it do? It makes us run away from God. But there's the type of fear that we like to think about as evangelicals, and that's the awe and reverence kind of fear or the awe and reverence response to God. What does that do? That makes us run to God. So we run away from God or we can run to God when we're faced with who he is. So what are some examples from the Bible? Since I was told, there's really fear is not really the terror dread thing. It's not that. It's just the awe and reverence part. Why don't we look at Scripture and see some examples of that terror and that dread type fear of God because it is a legitimate thing. Genesis 3, 6 through 10 I won't read that to you. This is Adam and Eve. And you know the story, so we don't need to read it anyway. What did they do? After they sinned, what did Adam and Eve do when they heard the sound of God walking in the garden? They hid themselves. They ran away from God. They did the same thing. Why? Because God said, in the day that you did the fruit, you'll surely die. So they were right to run. It was, a, it was the appropriate type of fear of God for them in that state of judgment. Listen to this. This is Albert Martin. He wrote a book that I found really helpful called The Forgotten Fear that was recommended by one of my buddies that preached on this subject. He says this, This kind of fear, this running away from God, is right and proper in every situation where our condition leaves us exposed to the righteous judgments of God. It is a completely legitimate thing for someone who's not in a restored relationship with God to be fearful of that judgment. That is a completely normal and reasonable attitude to have. In fact, if we go back a chapter earlier, in Genesis chapter 2, we might think, okay, well, this fear of God, this kind of dread or terror of God in the threat of judgment, that just came after the fall. Well, no, it didn't. Actually, in an unfallen world, this type of fear was there. And I'm going to propose to you it was there in the form of a threat. God said, God, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. That was a threat from God. And that was God motivating through that kind of fear uh, obedience on the part of Adam and Eve for their benefit. So it was there before. There, it is a completely legitimate thing and a biblical thing to have a dread of God and a dread of judgment. Well, let's go on. Joshua. Maybe you remember in uh, the Old Testament, the Israelites left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they make their way uh, to the land of Israel eventually. The spies come into the land and a, a prostitute named Rahab hid them. And this is what she said. And remember, we're, we're talking about examples of the dread and the terror of God. Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea. So the news of God's rescue of the Israelites had made it there. And they were, they were in fear because they knew that God was giving them that land and it caused terror to them. Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 46. David shows up. This is years later. This is, you know, four or five hundred, four hundred fifty years later, something like that. David is king of Israel. He goes out on the, well, no, he's not king of Israel yet. He's a boy. But he's, his brothers are out fighting the Philistines. And he comes out. He's bringing them a meal. He gets there, and this Goliath, this giant, is taunting the army of Israel. And David is mortified by that. How in the world can we stand here doing nothing while this Philistine is saying these things? Do we have no hope and, and faith in our God to oppose this man? And so he tries on Saul's armor, which doesn't fit. He goes out, he gets the five smooth stones, and he goes out there and he says to Goliath, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike and take your head that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. Now, once they know that there's a God in Israel, that's, that's the fear of finding out what happened to Goliath. What, that, what are they going to do with it? You see, once that news gets to the world of what happened in Egypt, and once the world gets the news of what happened with Goliath, it's faced with a choice, right? Do I run to that God or do I run away from him? That's the choice that men face. Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I ask the question, why? Why is that? Hebrews 12, 29, because our God is a consuming fire. That's a reason to have dread and terror of God. He is capable of massive destruction. There's a reason why fear is a real thing in relationship to God. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. The great white throne judgment. This is where God judges the unbelievers of the earth. I'm not going to read that either. But he judges them. And in that text, he says everything done is exposed, is brought and used as evidence against you at the trial. So Albert Martin, again, the author of The Forgotten Fear, says this. Men are out of touch with reality. Hence, they have no fear. In the same way, the only reason any unconverted person does not find himself gripped with constant terror and dread is that he is either spiritually blind or spiritually insane, or, and I would add, spiritually dead. I mean, that's the condition that men are in, right? He can make no connection between the fury of God's wrath and his own certain reception of that wrath in judgment. So people who are in this condition and they're faced with what they do know of God or they're faced with you as you're, or any other believer as they're hearing these things, they're faced with a, a decision to make, right? Do I run towards this God who is going to be judged or do I run away from him? That's the, face, that's the situation men face. And so what do a lot of men do? They engage in denial. It's denial. The first is denial of God's existence. I think I said this one in a previous sermon. I think I gave this quote. Stephen Hawking, he was the scientist, uh, theoretical physicist in, in a wheelchair, and he spoke through like a computer thing. And He died uh, last year. 
He said the laws of physics are sufficient to explain the universe. Let me translate that for you. We don't need God. That's what he's saying. We don't need God. The universe explains the universe. Well, the problem with that, I think I said in here when I mentioned that before, how do you have laws of the universe with no universe? If there is no physical realm, how do you have laws of a physical realm? You have to have a preceding lawgiver to give those laws of physics. God's character. I just mentioned this one. The head of an evangelical denomination said, we ought to whisper about what the, whisper, what the Bible whispers about and shout about what the Bible shouts about. And the Bible appears to whisper when it comes to sexual sin. No, it does not. This is a suppression of the truth of God. This is, this is the problem that we face in evangelicalism. This suppression coming from the outside. Suppression of truth. So question number six, what does the world need to remember about God? What do we need to remember about God? I'm going to give you, I think, eight here, character qualities of God. So I'll go through these kind of quickly. First is solitariness. I didn't even know that was a word. I had to look that one up. Solitariness. Basically what that means is, in order for you to know God, he's got to reveal himself to you. He says this over and over through the Bible, uh, through the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets. Isaiah 43, you can look, read 1 through 10 or you can just read 1 and 10. But God tells Israel, Israel, I created you, I called you to be mine and to know me. That's basically what that text says in summary. I called you. I created you so that you would know me. I've revealed myself to you. Paul says in Romans that Israel was so blessed. They had the covenants. They had the, the fathers. They had all of this that God did through the nation of Israel. He revealed himself to them the way he revealed himself to no one else, no other people on the, on the planet. So God's solitariness. Men need to keep this in mind. That God is solitary. You will not know God unless he reveals himself to you. What should be our response to that? Reveal yourself to me. We should do what Peter did. We should do what Peter did. What he, he dropped his nets and he followed Christ. If that's what it means for us to leave behind whatever it need, we need to leave behind in order to follow Christ, we should do that. We certainly should leave behind our old life. A second thing, foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge of God? It means to know someone with favor or approval. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter's preaching. We, just, we were just there in that area of the Bible, right? Acts 2 and 3. Peter's preaching and he says, This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, in other words, why was Jesus crucified? Because it was God's will. It pleased God, Isaiah says, to bruise him for our iniquity, right? This man, Peter says, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, I'm assuming the Romans there, and put him to death. This is, this is the control that God has. He can know someone before they ever exist, just like in the song, just like, just like 
we heard right there at the end of that song. God can know us before we ever existed. That's what his foreknowledge is. Again, the response should be humility. Lord, know me. Take me. I'm yours. I want to be your child. Well, a third character quality that's been forgotten, supremacy. If you remember Martin Luther, Martin Luther was a reformer, nailed the 95 Theses on the door right at Wittenberg. There was a scholar, a Greek scholar at the same time named Erasmus. He was you know, a heady, uh, academic kind of fellow. In a conversation Luther had with him, he said, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too small. That's what men do. Men shrink God down to a comfortable size. That's why this message is a little bit heavy. Because there's actually a Hebrew word for heavy, and that's what God is. He is heavy. He is weighty. And there's a flippant sometimes approach to God that's, that's not good that we see amongst our evangelical brethren. Listen to this. I'm, on, I'm going to read a quote from David, King David. This is at the point in Israel's history where they are accumulating. Uh, Solomon is going to build the temple. David's not. God's not going to let David build the temple. He's going to let Solomon do that. But David's attitude was, well, God's not going to let me build the temple, so what am I going to do? I'm going to start accumulating the things for the temple. So that's what's going on, and people are giving to this mission project. And David says, in prayer to God, he says, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to do great and to give strength to all. David did not underestimate God. That's an accurate portrayal of who our God is. And this person that David just described, this person deserves fear. The fear of the world and the fear of believers. Ownership. Over the years, I've had discussions, theological discussions, and sometimes those will turn to the doctrine of election, which is... uh, hated by some. One of the things that I hear people say when this subject comes up, they'll say the doctrine of election is not fair. It's not fair for God to choose to salvation one person and not another. And I don't know exactly how all I've responded in the past, but I'll tell you how I respond now. And that is with ownership. The universe would not exist if God had not created it. It is his. We just read. We just read. It's all yours. Everything in heaven and on earth belongs to God. He can do with it as he pleases. It's his. And it's certainly not up to us to tell God, there is a, there is a standard of fairness that I'm imposing on you, God, that you have to meet. God is, we are not God's judge. He is our judge. Again, that's the humility that the world needs to approach God with. That idea, that understanding, you are the owner of this universe, not me. Holiness. 
in Psalm 50, 21, God is recorded as saying this. You thought that I was altogether like you. And the context there is overlooking evil. God said, you thought I was like you. You thought I wouldn't judge what's wrong in the world, but I will. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, and the promises he's talking about is God living with us, being a father to us. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is a real part of the Christian life. So let's go on to, to our next quality, wrath. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, Now see that even I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, in other words, God is swearing, and say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. That is a real part of God's character. We live in a time where we speak of God's love and love. We want to catch flies with honey. But the fact of the matter is the world needs to hear that God is a judge and that God is a terror and that they ought to feel a sense of dread. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So men faced with what they know of God, faced with some character qualities of God that make them uncomfortable, do what? Suppress it. They suppress it. They forget that the wrath of God has been demonstrated over and over. If you open Scripture, you see it time and time and time again. You know there are different types of wrath of God? There's the eternal wrath of God. That's uh, you know eternally in, he in hell. Cataclysmic wrath of God, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's redemptive wrath of God. What does that mean? What is the redemptive wrath of God? That's the wrath of God that Christ experienced on the cross. He experienced the wrath of God to purchase you, to pay for your sin. That's the redemptive wrath of God. And there's the wrath of abandonment. That's what I believe our, our society is facing now, the wrath of abandonment. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and read verse 18, then look at these next three verses, 24, 26, and 28. And all three of those verses say that God turned them over. God turned them over to their whatever their desire was. He just let go. What God does... The world is pulling in a direction against God, and God's holding a rope. He's holding them back. But as men sin and sin and sin, he slowly lets go of that rope and gives them what they want, and what they want is not going to end well. And, and that's the turmoil, I believe, that we're seeing in the world around us now. God's knowability. He is knowable. The same man, Albert Martin, The Forgotten Fear, said this, the God of this world is seeking to inoculate people from serious thoughts about God. This is that suppression. Ask yourself, do I suppress the thoughts that I ought to have about God? Am I, am I inoculating myself? Am I numbing myself with something so I don't have to think about those things? 
They will meet God in judgment. If indeed the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, what better way to shut men in damning ignorance of that fear but to crowd out serious and reflective consideration of who God is? So what's the cure? The cure is the Word of God. Spend time in God's Word. John 17, 17, Christ said, Your Word is truth. Now, Jay... Doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out fear? It sounds like you're saying that Christians need to have a fear of God, and I am. So if the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear, what what do you say to that? Well, I say notice the rest of the verse. The context of that is punishment, judgment. But what do we know? We know that Christ has taken our punishment. Nevertheless, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, conduct yourselves in fear. This is written to believers. Conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth, knowing, why? Knowing that you were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. The fact that Christ took the wrath of God for us still encourages us to be fearful. Why? Because he did that for a reason. Christ died, and you don't want Christ to have died in vain. You want Christ to have died and bought you and to demonstrate that that purchase with the way that you live your life and your preparation for his coming kingdom, your faith that his kingdom is coming and that you're looking for that kingdom. So a change takes place. I'm saying I think there's one fear of God. There's just the fear of God, not really two kinds of fear. There's just fear of God. But something happens. When a person's an unbeliever, they're in a state of running away from God. They're in a state of suppressing what they know about God. But once someone comes to faith in Christ, or at the moment that someone comes to Christ, fear is a different thing. It's, God is still who he is, and he's still worthy of fear. But now we're in a, a different state where we know that Christ has taken that judgment. And so now our fear becomes the awe and the reverence. That's where a person needs to be. That's where we all ought to be and where we hope that those people around us come to, the place where there's awe and there's reverence for God instead of just running away from God. Let me give you three real quick examples of those who ran to God. You know Moses? You you think about Moses at the burning bush. He turned aside, right? He saw uh, this burning bush, and he was just... What's going on? Why is this bush not burning up? And he heads that way, looks at it, and God says, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. And Moses stays. Moses is drawn to God even after he's drawn to the bush, and then he's drawn to God once he's there. He doesn't go, oh, no, and runs away. Isaiah chapter 6, there's this well-known text where Isaiah is in a vision talking to God, and In God's presence, he's aware of the sin of his lips. And the angel takes the coal and touches his lips and says, you're forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. So he's there. But it's still trauma. Moses at the burning bush hid his face. And Isaiah was overcome with his sinful lips. You know, that's that's what we experience as believers. When we approach God, we don't just suppress it, ignore it, run away from it, replace it with some other type of belief system. We take God as he is. But we know that we are in a position of safety because we're in Christ. Christ took that.
punishment that we deserve. In Peter, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, are you got some disciples left? Jesus says, you guys going to leave me too? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So listen, listen to this. This is just my summary of this one point. When we trust in Jesus as our propitiation, and we need to know this word, propitiation, it's the one who takes away our wrath, the one who takes our wrath for us. We look at Christ in amazement, like Moses looked at the burning bush. We are drawn to Christ as was Moses. We are no longer compelled to run away from him as was Adam and Eve. Because we are now controlled by the awe and reverence we have for God. That's the change that takes place. Fear becomes a beautiful thing to a believer. Number eight, what can I do to have more fear of God? Uh, And by the way, this is probably a good point for the worship team to make their way up this way. What can I do to have more fear of God? If that's an appropriate thing for me as a believer... What can I do? My answer is one word, the Bible. To know God is to love God, but to know God is to fear God, to have the reverence and all that we ought to have for him. So I'm going to give you three Ps right here. Promise, past, and purity. As you take up the word of God, think about the promise that was made. Hopefully you've heard the term the new covenant, the new covenant made back in the Old Testament to Israel, which we become grafted into. That new covenant promise was that God would put his fear in the hearts of men. So if you are a believer, God through the Holy Spirit has put that fear in your heart. Let that fear work its way out. Let that fear work its way within you to change you who you are. So think about the new covenant promise. That's Jeremiah 32, 38, by the way. Think about the past. I don't know if you remember this story, but Saul was being troubled. He was king of Israel. David was young still. And he was David was playing a uh, musical instrument for Saul to help him... Im- soothe his emotional states. But Saul envied David. He hated David. And in a fit of rage, he picked up a spear and he threw that spear at David and missed him. So David lived. Do you know the wrath of God has picked up a spear? And not in a fit of rage, but in justice. God has picked up a spear and he has thrown it at you. But Christ stepped in between you and that spear. He took the spear of God's wrath for you. That's what he did on the cross. So think about that new covenant promise that God would give you a heart of fear, awe and reverence. Think about your past, the past, the cross, where Christ took this punishment for you. And think about your purity because we... Know from 1 John 3, 3, that everyone who looks on and hopes for the return of Jesus Christ purifies himself. Think on those three things to have more fear of God as he would want you to have. So I'm just going to close with this benediction here. From the, This is the end of the book of Jude. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. If you happen to be here today and you're still in a state where the fear of God is something that you're suppressing, something that you're running from, God is someone whom you're running from, stop running. Give your life to Him. The glory of God is unimaginable. We see glimpses of it here. But I promise, in the end, do you want to look into the face of Jesus Christ and see displeasure? Or do you want to see a smile? When you look into the face of Jesus Christ, do you want to see a frown or a smile? That's the question. It may sound counterintuitive, but fear of God leads to a smile rather than a frown. Let's go to the the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does give us a full, maybe not every nuance, but we get a, a full picture of who you are. Some of those things make us feel comfortable, and some of those things make us feel uncomfortable. But Lord, you are who you are. It's not just that I am who you say I am, which is true. You are who you say you are. And we're not going to worship you unless we acknowledge all of who you are. We're not going to worship fully. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've taken the wrath and through propitiation. You have taken the wrath that we deserve in Christ Jesus. We plead the blood of Christ for our sins. Knowing that we can't do anything to earn salvation. Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to come in corporate fellowship. To love on each other. To love your word and to sing your praises. Help us now to do that in a way that pleases you.